You're listening to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. My guest today is Steve Laffler. Um, your main comics you have out the Bug House trilogy featuring Bug House, Baja, and Scalawag. El Vaucho, Tranny. Tranny's yours, right? Yes, indeed. I'm it assume. Is, yeah. Of course, yeah. I, I, put, I put it under my, uh, my drag slash crossdresser name, as it were. <laughs> Uh, Fiona Mallrat. That's right. Rat. As well, Dog Boy is something that's yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know, I did. Um, Dog Boy was kind of my fascination and obsession in the 1980s, and uh, I had introduced that character in a magazine called Guts Number Three in 1982, summer of '82, and I went on to do a total of 17 issues, uh, ten under my own Cathead Comics imprint, and then. Uh, Rather seven with uh, Cathead Comics and then ten with uh, Fanographics. Oh, okay, I didn't realize the punch came up from Fanographics. Yeah. I didn't do enough research. I'm a failure. Well. <laughs> <or something. laughs> um, I've been I've been kicking around this business for for close to thirty years at this point. Yeah, it was funny. Like I was prepping for an interview with an underground guy, and I'm going through my undergrounds and then finding this issue of Anarchy, and I'm going through it, and there's a strip by you. Yeah, that's right. I had done, uh, uh, well, it's funny, I was doing uh, some uh, comics for a magazine out of Northampton, Massachusetts called SCAT, which was published by something called the Pioneer Valley Graphics Guild in the late 70s and early 80s, and they would publish a little bit of my stuff because I'd had a a daily comic strip in the University of Massachusetts uh, daily newspaper near there, so I knew all those guys. and one of the characters I developed for them was a superhero spoof called Naked Avenger. And uh, Jay Kinney, who was familiar with my work, saw a Naked Avenger strip. And I got a I got a letter from him at one point, and he's like, "Hey, I need to fill a page in Anarchy. In fact, I already put it in. Hope you don't mind, and <laughs> et cetera, et cetera." <laughs> and uh, yeah, I didn't mind at all. I mean, it was for me to be published in uh, in that magazine, you know, and under the last gas imprint was a big deal at age 24. It's a good, it's a funny um, anthology, like there's only like a handful of issues that are kind of oddly numbered. Maybe yeah, they're, probably they're, that was number so. three I was in. I don't know if there was any after that or not. I don't know. I think I only have three yeah. comments, but it was uh, it was interesting. It's a good, a good series. I love the undergrounds. And so yeah. It's definitely part of the tradition, although a little later in the game. Yeah, pretty late in the game. I remember, though, I had seen, uh, when I was a senior in college a year or two before I actually ended up in there, I'd seen Anarchy Number 2, which was, uh, it was really good, you know, as funny as could be. And uh, I remember Mavridis actually did a spoof in there that included a spoof on the Freak Brothers, uh, where, like, punk rockers were making fun of the Freak Brothers, and it was particularly funny because Mavridis himself kind of straddled the the just uh, the gap between hippies and, and punks. He was more of a punky guy himself. Yet, of course, he was one of the the artists that helped uh, Gilbert Shelton on the Freak Brothers. Mm-hmm. And uh, Spain was in those too, I think. Yeah, Couldn't, yeah. I guess that you can't. would be a natural to put yeah. to put Spain in a in a comic book called Anarchy. <laughs> you can't do a political underground comic without having Spain in it. Yeah, yeah. As far <laughs> as I know, he's he's more or less an avowed uh, appreciator of Marx. Yep. 
argument there. Were you uh, a punk rocker at that age? Well, as a young man. Yeah, I definitely. When when punk hit, I was a college student. I was 20 years old in 1977, and um, you know my friends and I were listening to all the usual kind of rock of the day. Uh, a more progressive band would have been uh, Roxy Music or something like that. But um, I don't know. You know, we we I liked a lot of different rock and roll. But then uh, the summer of '77, a friend of mine goes, "Well, I think Iggy's the best punk," and I'm like who's Iggy and what's a punk <laughs> <laughs> so he, he told me about it but then uh, I got back up to college at UMass that fall and uh, boom the first weekend uh, they had a four night run of the cars a year before they put their record out now they were more sort of whatever uh, pop but they kind of had the whole you know three minute songs with like cut down on the guitar solos ethos going but a month after that the Ramones came up and played and uh Everything was turned completely inside out from there, and I, I mean, I couldn't get enough of it. But the funny thing was, at the same time, uh, you know, I mean, I, I also, uh, I mean, I'm a deadhead. I love, I love the Grateful Dead, you know, and I like a lot of um, different types of music, jazz, blues, etc. But I, I was, you know, always embracing punk and going to the shows, but I wasn't like exclusively a punk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What was your uh, original interest in comics? What got you into comics as a young? Yeah, I would say, um, really, from the time I was a real little kid, uh, I, like I was, I'm thinking like ni- around 1962. I'm like five years old, and we're watch four years old, even three years old, watching TV. There would be, there was stuff on TV like the Jetsons and the Flintstones and all that, and that stuff was was a lot of fun. And of course, me and my siblings watched it. But the thing that caught my imagination and just really, really just pulled me into its world was reruns of uh, cartoons from the 30s and and the 40s. And often there'd be a a swing soundtrack to these things, swing, swing jazz. And the characters, everyone in the cartoon would be dancing and the dialogue would basically be rap on top of a swing soundtrack. I saw that and I'm just like yeah, I'm, I'm going to stay with this. <laughs> <laughs> did that, sense. how did that lead into comics though? Well, later on uh, I had a, I have a brother who's a year older than I and uh, we got into, we got into comics at probably seven, eight, nine years old. We, we got into uh, Gold Key Comics, Archie Comics, um, Harvey Comics, titles like Sad Sack, Little Lotta, all, all the Archie titles, Casper, and um, we 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 didn't know we were collecting, but after a couple of years, we had hundreds and hundreds of these things, and we loved them. We loved them. And then later on, uh, I had a, a cousin slightly older. The when I was ten years old, he goes, No, 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 look at these. He showed me uh, a bunch of Marvel stuff. This is this would have been the summer in 1967, and. Uh, I just I fell down the rabbit hole of uh, Marvel Comics <laughs> at that point, and uh, you know Jack Kirby, the world created by Jack, and all its unbelievable splendor just ate me up, and I stayed inside there for like a good solid five six years, and couldn't get enough of it. Some people still can't. Yeah, I know that's right. <laughs> I you know I like going back I like going back and looking at it, and uh, you know Kirby is is. He is what he is. He's he's a dynamo. He was a dynamo. Um, but 
but I don't know. You know, as as an adult, I'm I'm not particularly given to sitting there rereading hundreds and hundreds of pages of it because it's let's face it, it's kid stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was the thing that really made you want to make comics? Um, you know, I tell you, I go right back to being three, four years old watching, say, a Max Fleischer cartoon from the 1930s. Just figure there's a swing jazz soundtrack. Maybe it's set in hell. Some bug's been dragged down to hell. They put him in front of the devil, and they're just rapping at each other over swing. And I mean, and I look at it, I'm like, that's what I want to do. And, um, really, uh, a, a seminal moment for me actually was, uh, at age seven, seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan uh, in 1964 was a revelation because looking at these guys, maybe they're 22, 23 years old, but nominally they're adults. They are not, um, you know, living in the gray world of work and jobs. They're, they're, they're the Beatles. They're, they're cool and they're doing cool stuff. And I kind of had this odd notion that uh, that gave me permission to advanced towards adulthood doing what I wanted to do and uh, so I never doubted that I would draw comics one way or another it's funny like I didn't really think of the link um, of the bugs and stuff to like Fleischer cartoons my immediate thought was like kind of more Burroughs-esque thing with your yeah well all that stuff comes later with being an adult (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, you know, it's like you, you look at Crumb. Look at Crumb. I mean, I, I fell into Crumb when I was seven. Uh, no, uh, let's see, I guess I would have been uh, fourteen when I first started reading Crumb in earnest. And uh, ostensibly, you have the style of, say, an E.C. Seeger or someone like that. Mm-hmm. Only, you know, it's it's got a lot of the joy of life and verve and panache of of a Seeger uh, or a great nineteen thirties strip cartoonists, but, you know, they were doing very, you know, 1970, 1968 type things, you know, that is to say, sex and drugs and rock and roll. Um, So, you know, uh, you can take any sort of uh, stylistic um, template and and just mix it up with whatever subject matter you you want. I mean, that's that's part of the fun of comics. I kind of feel like when I read your comics, they really strongly reflect who you are and what you've been through. Yeah, I think that that's true enough. I'm not I'm not sitting here. Well, you know, it's interesting like um a guy for example, you know, I'm I'm pretty tight with Mario Hernandez and Mario would show me like a collection of great short stories, you know, like a O Henry type stories, a tightly knit uh mm-hmm. short story with a great twist ending. And he's a great admirer of that type of story. So when he writes a comic story, he's creating a great story with maybe an ending like that. But it's his story. I mean, no one else could have done it. Uh, But I'm I'm a little different than that in that I'm a little less concerned with constructing the the tightly bound entertaining narrative with a beginning, middle, and end, and maybe a twist. Uh, Yeah, it's more, you know, I'm, I'm... I'm thrusting my sensibilities into it. I'm I'm one of the people who's played forward the initial sort of underground ethos of comics 
really is not only as a means of personal expression, but is a little bit of a psychological uh, mirror to you know the the workings of your own psyche. Pretty pretty egotistical approach in some <laughs> in many ways. <laughs> but I don't know. I I love you know I'm you know I'm, I'm an entertainer. I'm an, and I'm a clown. I want to tell a story and I want to make people laugh. A big impulse is to just make people laugh. I it, it's I really do see that like you are especially like the idea of like working through inner demons. I see that a lot in different parts of the work. Um, it was funny like reading but the first Bug House book. And I was making little notes to myself, and uh, I was like, well, did you grow up Catholic? And I think you mentioned at a point in one of the notes after one of the books about growing up Catholic. And it kind of just, I see those little parts of how they work into your personal story, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Bug House, definitely I incorporated some of that stuff of working, working through growing up Catholic. It seemed to... It seemed to fit nicely into the Bughouse opus at a certain point. Um, Bughouse couldn't start like that. Bughouse was conceived as uh, an investigation into the nature of the relationship between art making and addiction and the nature of the creative process. But, um, you know, at a certain point you're creating characters, you want to create a, a fleshed out believable character and give them motivation, a uh, distinct persona, and whatnot. And I'm like, okay, let's let's go after the Catholic business with Jimmy Watts and Bughouse, why not? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the, the, sim- the links between addiction and kind of Catholicism, I mean, they're, they're, they're both kind of monkeys that someone carries on their back, right? Like it's... Yeah, yeah. They're, they, they're both different, for lack of a better term, demons um, that one deals with when they're kind of yeah, yeah. It, well, it's interesting. Uh, um, it's interesting. Uh, Catholicism. It seems like a lot of people, whether they whether they stick to the religion or not, they end up having a lot of uh, stuff to work out, a lot of psychological stuff to work out, a lot of baggage to work out, and maybe there is. Uh, I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if a high percentage of Catholics are are addicted to something. <laughs> <laughs> One way to one way to ease the like programming, I suppose. This here's the ballad on a Volkswagen bug. It's the first car I drove. It was owned by a thug. He says here's clutch. You're breaking the gas. You just let her out slow and don't you go too fast. With custom chrome mags and a tiny steering wheel was cool looking rig that my buddy had. I let out the clutch and I goose the gas. I gotta tell you, man, that little bug kicked ass. They call it the boat you're down in Mexico. Some are kinda old, some are kinda slow. Don't matter none, cause that bug got soul. With a low gear torque that'll pull the load. I bought an old poacher when Oaxaca town. From a hip young fella, happy pegged as a clown. It smoked and it huffed and but it's my baby, bug, it don't matter at all. I jacked up the back and I tricked it out sweet, but it didn't have paper, so I had to retreat. Don't want to get stopped with a bug that's hot, so I had to sell that photo on the spot. They called it the photo down in Mexico. Now some are kind of old, some are kind of slow. 
to matter now Cause them bug-eyed souls in a low-geared torp that'll pull the load Now I'm a-looking for a bug that's like new I'm gonna paint a metal flake indigo blue Chrome out the ancient detail in flames And I won't get stuck with bogus papers again Well, this here's a ballad on a Volkswagen bug It's the first car I drove it was owned by a thug He says here's a clutch the gas, you just let her out slow, don't you go too fast. You let her out slow, don't you go too fast. Well, let her out slow, don't go too fast. Was addiction something you've dealt with in your own life? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm just I'm just changing phones here. The one I was on seemed to be fading a little bit. Oh, okay. Um, well, yeah, you know what? Actually, the conception of Bug House had to do with, um, by the time I, I started working on the series when I, in around uh, 93 or 94, I was in my mid-30s, and, uh, you know, I'd been kind of a social drinker for many years, and uh, it just kind of got to the point where, uh, it'd become a little odious, the whole, and it, and it was just beer, you know, it's not like it was hard liquor or anything, but I noticed that it had gotten to a pretty unpleasant point in my life, the amount of uh, beer and how it affected my work, my relationships, uh, everything. And I had this funny notion that doing a graphic novel that was dealing with... Uh, addiction and creativity might be a nice way to explain myself how to dig myself out of the hole I was in and uh, you know remarkably it actually worked uh, there's a lot more to it than making art but you know I was kind of raising my own awareness to change my life for the better as part of what I was doing when I created Bug House it's alcoholism is something interesting within comics I'm just kind of been observing um, different creators that have kind of dealt with it in different ways um, Kim Deitch as uh, an alcoholic, uh, Zach Sally as well, and their work really. And I kind of see some similarities with Bug House too. It's kind of deals with kind of exploring the demons. Once again, I'm using I don't know this well, is not the best term, but I mean it's I I kind of see a theme there, and it's not necessarily like you're working off of Kim's work or Zach working off of your work. Um, kind of contemporaneous. Well, it's interesting. Kim came to a great solution of, um, you know, I, I chatted with him a little bit about this a good 20 years ago. You know, he, he stopped drinking, and this was, was his solution. And for me, it's like I stopped completely for several years, and now I've, like, I've entered into the world of a modest amount of social drinking again. <laughs> I'm here to tell you, man, it's a slippery slope. I mean, you know, I enjoy uh, a glass of wine or a margarita here or there, but, you know, I'm, I'm very, very aware that, you know, it doesn't take much to, to fall back down the rabbit hole and get yourself into a whole lot of trouble again. But, um, yeah, in terms, of, um, in terms of making art about it, there's, there's a therapeutic thing uh, to making art about it, but also part of what I was doing with Bug House was investigating the nature of self-delusion involved because mm -hmm. that's what I had identified in myself was the proclivity or the, the great ability to trick yourself about your addiction. It's really something that addicts or drunks excel at 
and so I, I wanted to explain myself and to myself in no uncertain terms the exact nature of just how good uh, I was at fooling myself about what I was up to uh, in, in order to help myself get out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine. It's all okay. No, yeah, it's not. that's right. Did you originally, when you started on that project, did you think it was going to be as, as big as it was? Yeah, I know. I had no idea. My, I, I really didn't. I kind of hoped it would turn into something like that. But um, the from the start, I was inspired stylistically by a couple of things. I definitely uh, David Cronenberg's Naked Lunch movie was one of it. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the work of William Burroughs himself, of course. But Cronenberg uh, did a very good job of bringing not only the Naked Lunch. Uh, work of Burroughs to the screen, but also he incorporated elements of other Burroughs book that had a little bit more of a cohesive narrative than Naked Lunch. Well, Naked Lunch doesn't have a cohesive narrative. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and some of Burroughs books like Junkie and Queer and some of them, they do have a more of a cohesive narrative. And he was able to, Cronenberg was able to bring the some of the best attributes of Burroughs work to the screen in a great way. Also, at that time, I'd read the autobiography of Miles Davis, which is a fantastic book about the history of not only, well, not only Miles, but of uh, the moment where swing jazz turns into bebop under the stewardship of Charlie Parker, Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie. Mm-hmm. And I was thrilled with, uh, with Miles' book just at the same time. And these were sort of the stylistic things that, that I glommed onto as I sat down to write about uh, creativity and addiction, and um, so I, I just felt really fortunate uh, that those things were just kind of sitting there for me. Did Miles have was an addiction a factor in his life at all? Uh, well, Miles Davis, he was a uh, God. He was such a smart guy, but such a such a passionate, emotional mm-hmm. guy too. But he did slip into, uh, as he describes himself, he slipped into heroin for a few years. Uh, around his late 20s, early 30s, and then he was able to pull himself out out of it. He, uh, you know, he'd kind of risen to the top, near the top, as a very young man, slipped into addiction. You know, he was still working, but he was, you know, he was a mess. But then, once he pulled himself together by the mid-50s, he he ascended to the top of jazz innovation. He stayed there for a solid 15 years, and he assembled the greatest bands. All all the guys who went through Miles' bands went on to form their own mm-hmm. great bands. I mean, everyone from Coltrane to Chick Corea, many others. And, um, you know, he was just a, a, a giant. Um, I mean, and also this book, his autobiography, he's a great raconteur. He tells a great story. He really is entertaining the way he tells all the stuff he went through. But uh, even even Miles was sort of a bastion of uh, just lying about his his habits. You know, he describes how he got away from junk, but then uh, you know later in the book he describes how like oh you know I was fine except well maybe I was maybe I was drinking like a fish and snorting cocaine all day. But you know other than that I was fine. <laughs> like okay Miles, <laughs> we believe you. <laughs> yeah, that's really great for creativity. Um. And that that's something interesting is with the creativity is like how drugs affect creativity in itself. Like yeah. these characters were able to kind of hit something in particular partially well, because 
part of the part of the funny thing about addiction is, I mean, why do people why do people self-medicate? Because maybe they have some pain they're trying to mask. But there's the other there's the other fact that um, I mean, you know, and this isn't talked about in you know all the talk about recovery and the lingo and uh, whatever the, the the keywords people use about recovery and getting getting off of stuff. But um, there can be a whole lot of fun in there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I in my own life will tell you I had plenty of fun times being drunk off my ass, and um, you know you you pay the price and it's 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 no way to live. But or even you know I mean I've never. Fortunately for me, I've never been seduced by the white powders, but yeah. uh, you know, I've I've tried most of them and had had fun on them. They certainly, to me, were nowhere near worth the price they extract from you. The bill comes due in short order on on all of those things. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, one reason people do them to mask pain, but they also do them because they're having fun. And so it, that's yeah. that's something I was able to express in Bug House too. That you know, when these people were high on bug juice, which is a stand-in for really any addiction, um, they would go on these incredible flights of fancy and like create this incredible music. It was indeed affected by what they were on, but they were still having fun and making great music. You have a different viewpoint on on psychedelics. I feel like. I would say so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I. Um, well, I mean. You know, first of all, um, you you look at things that are physically addictive uh, to varying degrees. I mean, nicotine, caffeine, alcohol, cocaine, certainly speed, and heroin. These things are physically addictive. Um, you know, if you stop, if you're addicted and you stop using them, you go through withdrawal symptoms and all that. Uh, psychedelics um, are not physically addictive. Although there there are people who would find a habitual way to use them and not to their advantage, that is for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, my opinion uh, with psychedelics is that people people know when to use them. Hopefully, or they they should they should take a a real gut check before they consider using them. But I mean, for me, um, I don't know. It varies. Uh, LSD is is an interesting thing. It's like a psychological mirror. Um, you know, it kind of returns you can return you to the same place again and again. And uh, I ultimately I don't think it's necessary to keep going to that place, but it's worth visiting. Whereas um, with mushrooms, um, I don't know. I I've had experience. I had an experience as a young man where I was. Uh, I don't know. It was a one-of-a-kind experience. It was, to for all intents and purposes, I would call it the equivalent of like a shamanic <laughs> initiation <laughs> or something, what I experienced. And I, I didn't understand that. This happened when I was a freshman in college. I wouldn't, I didn't understand that at the time, but later on reviewing things like uh, the literature of Joseph Campbell or the book uh, Black Elk Speaks about a young... Uh, Sioux Indian who went through a, a similar experience under different circumstances. What happened to me um, under the influence of mushrooms did seem to be some sort of uh, initiation into a different way of seeing the world that I found a lot better than, for example, being Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> 
It, um, I've heard other stories like uh, Robert Anton Wilson in the Cosmic Trigger talks about the little green man that visited him. Yeah. And yeah, you know, I should read. People People bring him up on a regular basis, and uh, I I really should pursue Robert Anton Wilson. I, I just don't know that much about the guy. Um I know that there is uh, there is a guy these days, Daniel Pinchbeck, I believe his name is. Uh, he's he's a self-styled psychedelic uh, guru, and you know he's an interesting guy. His work does not resonate with me, just uh, for whatever reason. Uh, what the guy that's interesting to me, the guy's interesting to me would be Ken Kesey mm-hmm. and uh, Terence McKenna. Uh, people are. Many people are familiar with what Ken Kesey did with the whole, you know, the bus and the acid test and all that. But Terence McKenna had an idea that uh, the mushrooms themselves have a point of view. And Terence tries to mix uh, his ideas of uh, his psychedelic vision with science. He was trained in science. And, and, I mean, I don't know, to me it's like why try to sell these Insights and these worldviews to people who are science-based because they'll reject them out of hand. I mean, you know, each each of these things sort of stand on their own, and I don't have a I don't have a problem with them not mixing. Science is great for explaining um, sort of physically manifest phenomenon, and that's wonderful. Um, but uh, I don't know. McKenna's thing resonated with me in the sense that he says that. It seemed to him that the mushrooms had a point of view, and that's what I experienced too. Uh, at least, the, I mean, I when I was a kid, uh, it seemed to me that they were sort of like going, "Come with us, Steve. We have some things to show you. You're a good sport. We're going to scare the shit out of you, but you're a good sport. You don't mind." And it was like getting a peek backstage at how um, reality seemed to work. And uh, you know, and I and I won't. I've been going on at length here. I won't bore you with the details of what that vision was because that's what I've been doing comics about for 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and that's just, that's just how the the impact that they've had and like the role that it's played in your life. I think so. You know, I mean, I I have certain certain concerns and certain subject matters, but um, yeah, this this sort of like being turned inside out when I was uh, 19 years old. That experience. Really, you know, it was like, okay, what are human beings? Uh, what are we here for? Um, let's let's try to figure this out. And you know, to me, it was it always, you know, I mean, <laughs> I guess I'm kind of a child of the '60s. I mean, you know, punk rock and all, notwithstanding. I mean, it's like I I feel like uh, the the impulse, the the basic impulse of the universe is to is to have fun and make art and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, and, and it, it proceeds from a basic sort of impulse of, uh, you know, love and creativity. So that's, I mean, that's that's kind of the premise I I advance from. And uh, you know, I guess there could be worse things. You know, of course, uh, like like anyone who's putting forth, uh, in, in even in sort of oblique terms, couched in narrative, who's putting forth an idea of a description of reality. I freely admit that. Um, Chances are I'm completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone's right. No, no, no. Yeah, and anyone who does, they're wrong. There we go. We're all wrong. We're all right. Yeah, there you go. No. Um, I I kind of see that that kind of uneasiness of of 
having an identity or creating an identity kind of st following through with uh, Tranny. And I'm curious to that. Like, it's kind of a, a fun, kind of silly comic, but in a way I kind of feel like it isn't. Well, you know, it's... I I mean, that's that's just something that's, that's a part of me that's just been kind of... Uh, sitting in me since I was a little kid. And... Um, I don't know. I never. I always knew it was there, and I never had a problem with it. But from early on, you see that uh, it's it's taboo, and that if you if you act on it, you know, you get a lot of uh, negative reinforcement. And then I don't know. As uh, you know, as an adult living in a place like Oakland for many years, at a certain point, I'm just like, well, you know, let's just let's just act on this because. Uh, it's just sort of fun, and it's in me, and let's do it, and let's make comics about it. And There's a certain lightheartedness there, uh, as there usually is in my stuff, but there's also, there's also the recognition that, um, you know, if you're somewhere on the whole uh, transgender scale, that's it's just not that easy a place to be in this world. <laughs> no, I, I've, I've talked to artists before, um, not public conversation, but just hearing the challenge of that and kind of unease of of, of what you go through. Um, always, these are folks that have taken kind of a further step than just cross-dressing. Um, but yeah, everyone. There's a million different like ways that it it works for people, and everyone has to find their own sort of comfort level with it. And you know, I mean, I don't, being being uh, just an artist and used to working with a kind of a uh, improvisational style. Although, you know, as I've gotten older, I've gotten more sort of structured in, in my writing and my concerns about uh, structuring narrative. But you know, I'm I'm comfortable with with being unusual. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. 
sexual identity is kind of a sliding scale. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not I set mean, anywhere particular. Yeah, I think that um, there's there's no there's you know even people who identify strongly one way or another. I mean, you know, there's there's sort of there's sort of categories out there waiting for us to step into and and say yes, we're this or we're that. But I mean, you know, I mean, hey, what are you going to feel like next Tuesday? You don't know, and so next Tuesday you can f- you wake up and go hang out and find out what you who you want to be and what you want to do. <laughs> well, you're very very specific in uh, utilizing the superhero uh, motif to yeah. kind of like have this as like you know it's just one of these other kind of things. Well, that's just that's just kind of for fun. That in a way that's sort of an in your face kind of thing. It's like. Uh, I mean, there there has to be some sort of connection there. You know, you're you're changing your identity, you're you're doing something kind of on the sly. Uh, I mean, even if you're out there saving the world, you know, you're 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 still wearing wearing tights and putting on a mask. <laughs> it's like what's what's going on here, man? <laughs> um, Jeez, you know, I really want to save the world, but I really want to do it wearing opaque blue pantyhose. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to remind folks who I'm chatting with. I'm chatting with Steve Laffler. Uh, the main books are uh, the Bug House trilogy featuring Bug House, Baja, Scalawag, and your more recent releases, uh, self-published releases, Tranny and El Vocho. Uh, El Vocho? El Vocho, yeah. El Vocho, uh, from your uh, self-publishing imprint, um, Manx, Manx Media. Media. Yeah. Yeah, and El Vocho, uh, I just, just heard from Diamond a couple days ago. I, it looks like they're going to list it in October in previews, and I, I think that means they're going to ship in December. It's like I, I haven't, uh, since I was with Top Shelf for several books, It's and it's been a while. Actually, in, with, with Tranny, that was handled, the, the whole Diamond thing was handled by Sparkplug that time. So oh, okay. it's been a while since I dealt direct with Diamond, so i got to... Got to call my diamond rep tomorrow <laughs> and dig in. Yeah, I don't think uh, Sparkplug deals with diamond at all anymore, do they? I can't remember. Um, what was the choice with doing self-publishing? Well, I mean, right now, you know, I, I had a good uh, good experience working with Top Shelf with uh, Chris and Brett. They're great guys, and uh, I don't know. I just can't say enough good stuff about them, really. Um you know, Brett's like Mr. Enthusiasm mm-hmm. on like all fronts, a great book designer and uh a lot of a lot of fun. And uh, you know, working with Chris, he's um I mean, he was the guy who helped me edit the first volume of Bug House into a seamless narrative. Which it was it was close, but it just wasn't quite there and you know, he kinda he has uh he understands how comics work, he has the eye to, to put it put it in order and, and get it where it needs to be. But, um, you know, I'm not a guy who's knocking the world over with sales. So uh. Uh, I tried to sell, uh, you know, some of these other books to various publishers. And, you know, especially in this in this economy that's very tough, uh, my best option is to do it on, on my own, especially because, I mean, Frankly, I stand to stand to make a little bit more money if I do it on my own. <laughs> if it's if it's going to sell, if it's going to sell modestly, which chances are it will, um, I just I just get more of the take if if I do it myself. There we go. Yeah. And you live in Oaxaca, Mexico, correct? Yeah, I live in Oaxaca, and that has a lot to do with uh, the book El Vocho because um, 
basically uh, Vocho is the Volkswagen bug. That's what they call them down in Mexico. And there's there's millions of them still on the on the street down there. They made them in Veracruz State until 2004. So um, just I got inspired by seeing all those cars, and I wanted to do a story about clean energy, and I wanted to do a love story. So boom, El Vocho. But now I've lived in Oaxaca for three years, and um, I figure whatever I do next will really see the influence of living in Mexico on my work. You've had a lot of visitors down there. Yes. It's uh, interesting. Like I was talking to Peter Cooper. He spent some time down there. Yeah, well, Peter really... uh, Cooper lived down there for uh, two years with his family. His second year was my family's first year. Oh, okay. Yeah, and his daughter went to the same school as my kids, so... Uh, yeah, it was great. You know, I, I knew Peter a little bit before, so it was great to see him down in Oaxaca. And um, also, uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of people come down and hang out. And I mean, Brett Warnock uh, from Top Shelf came down with his family this last winter. We had a good time. I introduced him to the wonders of Oaxaca. It's a real cultural center in Mexico. I'd say it's second only to Mexico City in terms of a cultural center. Mm-hmm. What was the choice in moving there? Well, uh, my wife, Serena, and I, we spent half of 1997 in Mexico before we were parents. And we researched it quite a bit before we went down. We lived in a couple different places, the city of Guanajuato, and we checked out the so-called Mexican Riviera, traveling from Puerto Vallarta, Malaque, Cihuataneo, Puerto Vallarta, and ultimately the city of Oaxaca. We also got to Mexico City and Chiapas on that trip. But Oaxaca... It's just a, it's a, it's a unique place. It's just a splendid, splendid city, uh, ge- geographically slightly isolated. Uh, it's at altitude inland. It's in a spot where three different mountain valleys meet, and boom, there's the city of Oaxaca at 5,000 foot altitude. It's uh, for for 10 months of the year. It's just spring-like. Two months, it's a little too hot, and it's you know people have lived there for many thousands of years. And it's got a great tradition of art and culture and, above all, food. <laughs> it's the best <laughs> food in Mexico, at least from my point of view. <laughs> Is the uh, the two months of heat what brings you up to the States right now? You know, <laughs> no, not really, because it's uh, the hottest months would be April and May, the last two months of the the dry season and what happens is we were still down there then because the kids are still in school mm-hmm. but we got to we we come up now because um you know the kids are out of school we want to come to the states and see family and after those two hot months we're like oh my god let us out of here <laughs> <laughs> run 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 yeah yeah um so el vocho tell me a bit about the uh you're saying the clean energy why is that a Interest. Well, I don't know. It seems to me that, you know, the human race, uh, we can do a lot better than we've been doing, and a lot of it comes down to energy. And I'm not a scientist, so I'm not going to attack it from that point of view. And although I'm self-employed, I'm not like a, you know, I'm not a real, true businessman investor, so I'm not going to sit there and, like, you know, invest in wind or solar or whatever. So what I can do is just kind of make a story about it and and comics form and so I made a story about about clean energy and I made it a love story too because that appeals to me but uh, it's funny I got down there to Oaxaca three years ago and for the first half a year I really didn't know what I wanted to do comic wise and I started doing a web comic about a cute little girl who looked a lot like my toddler daughter 
So this, these were very cute web comics, and they got a good reception. But I thought, you know, web comics are great, but I really, I'm a graphic novelist, so let's do a graphic novel. So uh, I was inspired early in 2008. Uh, Matt Stromberg, the great painter and comics artist Matt Stromberg, came for a visit, and somehow Matt's very presence just uh, fired me up. And Matt and Perry, his partner, they they visited us and they went off to the Oaxacan coast for a week. And when they came back, Matt says, "How you doing, Steve? What's up?" And I go. Dude, uh, while you were away, I sat down and I wrote a script. All I did all week was sit down and write. So, so that's where the script came from. And uh, yeah, so I just kind of, between being a super dad and just kind of living life in Mexico, I just chipped away on this book for a couple of years, and now it's done. Awesome. Yeah. Making comics. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about the music side of your life, because uh, oh, I'm presuming well, we'll probably. Uh, be having some of your songs on here if that's something you'd be into oh cool cool well i'll tell you you know i mean i'm i'm obviously a music lover i did bug house which is this whole opus about uh really about the birth of bebop among other things um you know i'm a rabid uh fan of many bands uh ramones favorite bands i don't know ramones cramps muddy waters holland wolf <laughs> grateful dead uh a lot of people howl when they hear me say grateful dead but jerry man can't beat him. Anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know. Oh no, that guy. Well, but I when I moved to Oaxaca, I um, it's funny. We, we Serena and I, my wife, we needed to rent or buy a house. So we this guy we call up Todd and Sylvia. They they sell real estate in Oaxaca, and so I get in the car with with Todd and Sylvia, and we're going to go look at some places. And within ten minutes, Todd sizes me up and he goes, "Huh, you play guitar?" And I'm like. Well, not really. I mean, I kind of chip away at it the tiniest bit. And he's like, fine, you're going to come out on Thursday nights and play with us. So <laughs> he drafted me. He's a gr- very gracious soul, this guy Todd Spieler, who co-wrote the song Ballad of the Bug, which is sort of the theme song for El Vocho. <laughs> but uh, I started coming out and playing with uh, Todd's group. This other guy, Tony Robb, is the host. On Thursday nights, we play Under the Stars in the village of San Pablo Etla, 10 miles from the city of Oaxaca uh, and 50 yards from Tony's mezcal still, mezcal being distilled uh, agave. And uh, anyway, uh, it's, I don't know, it's kind of country blues and bluegrass and rock and roll and, you know, corny corny pop rock, whatever the heck we feel like playing. But um, this is something I didn't expect moving down there. Like I told Todd that day, I've always enjoyed shipping away playing a little bit just for fun but um i just uh i've gone oaxaca billy and uh i can't get enough of it and uh yeah i don't know i'm a i'm a songwriting guitar playing cater wallen uh, uh white boy from new england uh oaxaca billy <laughs> yahoo now <laughs> it, it, it must have been really nice to have a quote on the book uh, on one of your books from lux interior then Oh yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, the, I mean, the cramps. I mean, well, it's it's interesting. Talk about uh, a shamanic catharsis. I mean, I've, I always loved that band from the moment I heard them in whatever it was, 1979. But for some reason, had never seen them. And the the first time I saw them was the summer solstice in 1990 at the Warfield in San Francisco, and I, I like lost my mind in the pit. And it was like um, the most fun I ever had in my life. I mean, I like broke my glasses and cut my arm and 
lost my keys and all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, man, I'll do that any day. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, the cramps, I mean, they were, the, you know, the late great Lux. Uh, he was the true king of rock and roll. He was a performance artist. He was a comedian. He was definitely some sort of tranny. But um, uh, above all else, he had a pure rock and roll heart. I mean, you know, no apologies to Lou Reed, but the man with a rock and roll heart is Lux Interior. Oh, uh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's. Uh, I will not argue that. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever read the uh, research book with the uh, interview yeah. with him and? Yeah, yeah. One time, uh, my my good friend J.R. Williams was visiting my house when I lived in Oakland in the early '90s. J.R. visited, and he picked up a copy of that book. And like, I just sit next to him, waiting until he went to the bathroom so I could grab it and run off and read it for a few minutes. <laughs> it's amazing. They they have this 45 collection. For people who don't know, and it's just this like kind of you know immense, most researched rockabilly. Lux, Lux and Ivy were true archive. historians. Not only of rockabilly, but all sorts of fringe music from the 40s, 50s, and 60s. All these, I mean, they weren't even bands. They were just like guys who would like get their, you know, it's like I think he said in the interview, you know, like guys would get their dad to put up some money and they'd go to some local recording studio somewhere in Kansas or Iowa. They'd, they'd cut a few insane songs and no one would ever hear from them again. But still, you know, there was still a thousand records out there and Lux probably had it. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. I, yeah. He was one of those folks, you know, we've had a lot of these uh, recent deaths of musical people, and yeah. he was one of those that really hit me, him and uh, Joe Strummer, I think, were the two that... Oh, God, Joe Strummer, I mean, God, to die to die so young, and to uh, voice voice like an angel, a certain kind of angel, but man, there's only one Joe Strummer. The Clash are another, I mean, incredible band. I don't know, the, the Good Die Young, I mean, one of my favorite uh, short-lived bands was the Minutemen, uh, mm-hmm. Dee Boone the guitarist and singer for the Minutemen. I mean, just that guy had it in spades, and he only was able to, you know, have this career of like five years or something. I mean, he was immense. It, uh, yeah, I just remember that, or reading about how it devastated the whole Southern Cal punk scene. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, I read uh, Rollins' Get in the Van, and that was just a big chunk of it. Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. I, I heard uh, when when Lux died, I, I heard, uh, I, I don't know, I was just kind of reading up about it and stuff, and some of these guys, like uh, Henry Rollins, wrote a great eulogy for him that was printed in the L.A. press somewhere, and uh, he mentioned that Mike Watt uh, from the Minutemen was, and, you know, his own career, Mike Watt was really bummed when Lux died. He just was like, oh, man, come on. Yeah. Well, it's uh such a sad note we've gotten ourselves to here. I Steve. know, I know. <laughs> Everyone, just go and uh, we're all up. finite. Yeah, go go listen to uh, "Stay Sick" or the "Human Fly" or something. Yeah, stay sick, the man. That's a great record. Um, so, what do you have for the future? What, what, what where do you want your comics to take you? Yeah, well, I'll tell you. I got a I got a notion right now that um, you know I did in the in the 1980s mostly. I did with this character, Dog Boy four or five hundred pages of comics so i think it's time for me to assemble them into some sort of collection and uh it'll be a pretty thick book i'm not going to print all dog boy because some of it you know some of it blows (laughs) chunks but a lot of it's pretty good i think and i'll I'll do a new story too i got it a funny idea for a new story so this will i'll work on this next it'll be called dog book um, and, uh, yeah, and uh, the the great, the brilliant uh, Joe Sacco. I was going to do this book like ten years ago, and I got Joe to 
write me an introduction for it. So I'm going to have to get a hold of Joe and go, hey, Joe, I'm finally going to do this. Can I still use your introduction? We'll see <laughs> I'm what sure he you'll be fine with it. But, yeah, when I was um, published by Fantagraphics, Joe was actually the editor of Dog Boy for like three issues or something like that because he, uh, he worked as a staff guy for them for a while in the I 80s. Did, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, before blooming into like just this comics, comic journalistic genius on every level, story, mm-hmm. uh, just details, details of art, details of personal stories, all this stuff. Um, yeah, you know, he had to have a job, so that was his job. How was he, did he, was he much of an editor at the time? Do you have no, no, I mean, at that point with Fantagraphics, the editor's job was to, you know, bundle up the pages, get you to spell everything right, and send it off to the printer. And make sure um, you have it done. Yeah, the infamous thing is that uh, Dog Boy number four, uh, <laughs> the deck got shuffled, and uh, the I got a call from Joe one day, and he's like, "Steve, you're sitting down. We printed the pages out of order," and I'm kind of like, "Ah, Joe, it's just Dog Boy. It's a mess anyway. It doesn't matter." <laughs> <laughs> so, oh. poor guy. I shouldn't bring that up. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll bring it up in a, if I ever interview him again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> See if he even remembers that. Probably does. You probably care not to. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for uh, chatting with me today, Steve. Ah, Robin, it's a great pleasure. It's a great pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I really enjoyed it. It's got me jazzed. I guess, good. Uh, the right thing to say. Oh, good. That sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. I dig that goddamn rock and roll. The kind of stuff that don't save souls. And I'm just horny enough to throw. Bucket Jack had a hole Some rabbit dug himself some Alice hole Pumped, he dumped it till it done explode They did that goddamn rock and roll Yeah, they did that goddamn rock and roll That kind of stuff that don't save souls Ain't nothing good about it that I know I think that goddamn rock and roll Not King Tut Of old going nights were 